0: i teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, or by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. This is God's word. You pray for us, Jake. Brother, <clears throat> anybody like board games? Yeah, a few of you have uh, you. If you come to my uh, wife and I's home, you'll find a little ottoman thing that opens up, and it's going to be packed full of board games. Uh, one of our favorite things to do. We haven't been playing a lot lately. We need to kind of get back into it. Uh, we we played a lot in, in college, and and had a lot of friendships to be made over good board games. Um, it it keeps us away from technology, and it keeps us in each other's lives, and it's just a good, fun thing to do. Uh, however, one thing that can be frustrating is learning a new board game. Uh, I'm always the guy who's, you know, like, not real excited whenever we're going around and playing, what should we play? Should we play this? Should we play this? Should we play this? And I'm thinking, you know, let's play Uno, you know, something that we know. I'm, I'm not trying to learn something new today. I'm trying to play a game, right? Um... However, my wife will tell you that she's the exact opposite. She will grab the manual out of that board game and pour over it for an hour or more. Maybe not that long. But she will make sure that everybody knows the rules. She'll make sure that the instructions are clear. Um, And then she'll answer everybody's questions halfway through the game. When we're like, oh, what are we supposed to do when this happens? Do we go forward? Do we go backward? What do we do now, right? Uh, She is going to know what to do. She is the instruction queen. And usually I kind of black out halfway through the instructions, and I'm the one who's asking her most of the questions anyway, Um, especially stuff like Monopoly Man. Does anybody actually know the rules and and everything? Um, Anyways, we're going to look at some instructions today. Don't black out. Pay attention. Um, These are six instructions for elders, for overseers, for pastors in the body of Christ. And I know that it's Thanksgiving, and you guys are maybe some of you looking for a Thanksgiving sermon. Um, but the Word of God has has led us plainly uh, to this passage of Scripture that applies particularly to those who are in charge of overseeing the body of Christ, of preaching, of being an under-shepherd, uh, but also for all of us who might be young, that we might not be despised for youth. For those who are called to set an example for the body of Christ in speech and uh, love and conduct and purity. For all of us to come together around the central piece of, of, of God's revelation, which is his word, and to hold it up high and to publicly proclaim it and to command and teach these things. What a wonderful piece of scripture to thank the Lord for this time of year. God has given us Him self through his word. So we get to take hold of things like godliness in the scriptures, right? Isn't that what we talked about last week? We talked about training ourselves for godliness. You know, bodily training is of some value, but how about training in godliness, which holds value in every way, promises now, hope now, and promises later, right? Timothy. Elders, overseers in Ephesus, make sure that godliness is your priority. And and we already asked this question last week, but let's ask it again that, that really prompts us when we think about that. Why should I? What do I stand to gain from godliness? Why should I pour my life into this? What are the consequences if I don't? What's the worst thing that could possibly happen to me if I don't devote my life to growing in godliness? I think Paul answers that question for us down at the bottom of our passage today. Look at verse 16 of chapter 4. I think he's been working all the way from verse 1 of chapter 4 down to this end part, kind of this this big purpose statement here. Verse 16 says, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. We have this huge push here. This this is more than just a logical, earthly, physical training. This is a godly training that's eternal because, Paul says, the biggest reason you should follow these instructions is because salvation is at stake. Right? The souls of men and women are at stake. The salvation of yourself and your hearers are at stake. So run towards God. Let me, let me explain a little bit here. Because we know, good Southern Baptists, that we're saved by what? Grace. Nothing but the blood. Grace. grace. The grace, grace of God. Sola gratia. We just went through the five solas on Wednesday nights, didn't we? We should know a little bit about how salvation works. So what is Paul actually talking about being saved from? Well, I, I think there's two implications that, that he could be saying. I think first it's a saving from false teaching and myths. How do you begin the chapter? Some are going to depart from the faith. They're going to wander into teachings of demons whose consciences are seared. They forbid things. They require things. They they don't know the God that they claim to teach. So Paul has spent a lot of time in this little letter warning Timothy and Ephesus about the dangers of false teaching. You need to persist in these things. You need to follow these instructions. You need to pursue godliness so that people don't fall into myths. People don't fall into false things doctrines false instructions and i think the second second implication though is a little bit more literal i think the salvation of souls is at stake now timothy can't save anybody paul can't save anybody i can't save anybody you can't save anybody but paul does use the good old soul winner language in a few of his letters 1 Corinthians 9, we were there not too long ago on a Sunday night. Paul says, I'm going to be all things to all people so that by whatever the means, I might save some of them. Jews or Gentiles, I don't care. And then then he says in 1 Corinthians 7, just before that, about marriage and uh, spouses who, who may not share the same faith or some who believe and some don't. He says, how do you know, believing wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know believing husband, whether you will save your wife. And Romans 11, Paul went to the Gentiles, he says, hoping to make the Jews jealous, so that by the jealousy of the Jews, some of them might be saved. So I think there is some soul winner language going on here. I think the reason that there is some literal salvation going on is because he's saying, if this isn't your great priority, if you are not pursuing godliness and you're not following these instructions... Maybe it's time to get right with God. Do you know Christ at all? Have you been changed as we just sang? Is your body being presented as a living sacrifice? Look at Jesus, the exalted King of glory, who was the substitute for your sin, who bore our death on the tree, who suffered the Father's wrath on our behalf, who rose from the dead in glorious victory, and who's calling men and women today to believe in Him before the final judgment. And in believing in him, we are changed into new creatures. Like the old is gone, the new has come kind of stuff. Which means godliness ought to be our new priority. So if it's not, we have the salvation of our hearers at stake. It's my job this morning to warn you if these instructions on this, this, of this book are, are literally just words on a piece of paper. Right? Right? then it's time to to get real with who God is and, and what He says in His Word. This life is terribly dangerous if you're living it in an ungodly way. There is only hopelessness to be sought after. A life of destruction, a sad, dismal, lonely life awaits. So listen to the Word of God. Hear the word of God. See Christ. Perhaps be saved this morning. I've got these six instructions broken up into two parts. Instructions to save your hearers and instructions to save yourself. We're going to spend the majority of time on the first one. Instructions to save your hearers. Broken down into three different ones. They're pretty simple, verse by verse. Verse 11. Command and teach these things. Command and teach these things. Let me remind you what we read back in verse 6 last week. He says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. And we, so we said, well, what are the good things? Right? What are these things that we're supposed to put before the brothers? What did we find out? Everything. A to Z. Right? From verse 1 to the end. Everything. That, that these are pop these apostolic writings that are written down, the very words of God, put these things before the brothers, point them out to the church so they might see them, that they might be changed by them. And so now we've got a little bit more direction here on what to do as we're putting these things out before the brothers. We're not just like, here you go, we're commanding them. And we're teaching them, is what he says, so that your hearers might be saved. What do you want out of your pastor's? What do you want out of your elders, your overseers? It's growing more and more common to see elders who are giving way to pleasing man rather than pleasing Christ. We're in the age of tolerance, no matter what's right or what's wrong, which means an overseer who commands things of his congregation is going to be more and more of a spectacle. But can I ask you something? What if they ran the military with officers who did not make commands? We'd be one sissy army, wouldn't we? We would not be very strong. We'd be pretty weak. And so if we're going to fight, right, if we're going to be ready to take on the spiritual battles that we learned about in Ephesians 6 this morning, we need to have these commands and these teachings before us. The word for command is parangele or paren. there's no J in Hebrew, perangele. We've talked about this before. It comes from the word angel, Right? You hear the word angel right there in the middle of that? Those who are sent from God, messengers, who had the authority of God to say something so that people would listen to it. Right? This is from the Lord, they would say. And how about this word teach? Is didaske. To teach, to admonish, to instruct. And so, listen, in order to save the hearers at Main Street Baptist Church, we need elders, pastors, who command and teach these things, who command and teach. The word, this is for your good. This is so we might save some, both from ungodliness and from their own sin by the preaching of the gospel. But it's not only what comes out of the elder's mouth that is good for you. It's also how they live their lives. Number two, or number B, be an example. Be an example. Look at verse 12. Let no one despise you for your youth. But set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Timothy had an example to keep, an example to make. And Paul talks expressly about some issues that the congregation at Ephesus might have with him being an example. He says that it's not good for hearers to despise their pastors. It's not good for the hearers to despise their pastors. Now there are many, many, many things that can make people slowly grow a despising attitude toward their pastors. The word despise means to scorn, to disregard, to insult, to think negatively of someone. There may be some here today who think negatively of me, who think negatively of Joey. And I'm not sure what the driving force might be. But here's what it was for the church at Ephesus in regard to Timothy: Let no one despise you for what, for your youth. Literally, let no person or thing, nothing, think negatively, despise you about youthfulness. Now we asked about old men and old women back in Titus. Said, "How old is old, right? I don't know. How old is young? How old is young?" You know, it's kind of a hard thing to answer. The word youth can also just mean newness, kind of green, haven't done this a lot, unexperienced. Or it can mean full of energy, almost childlike, high metabolism. It can also directly refer to age, right? So we know that Timothy was a young pastor, so it could have been a little bit of all these things. But let me point out something here. It is distinctively unbiblical, to despise your pastor for youthfulness, for young age. Or even if they're just new. It's distinctly unbiblical to despise a pastor because he's new. Like the Bible just addresses it point blank, like it's going to be a problem for some reason. In fact, I think there's another word for practices that are contrary to Scripture, if we can just be honest for a second. It's called sin. I don't know, there's a lot of reasons to despise anybody made in the image of God, particularly your brothers and sisters in Christ, particularly those whose God has put over you to to shepherd you. Let's instead despise sin. Let's despise false doctrine. Let's despise our flesh and put it to death or we might run the race. Why would we be at war with each other? Let's not despise one another, family. Let's despise our own flesh. It's good for you that Joey and I are not despised for trivial reasons like these. And it's also for your good that we live exemplary lives. Regardless of age, regardless of newness, regardless of skill set, regardless of background, regardless of any type of personal preference. God gave elders to the church to see a picture of godly living, not just to hear it preached about. To see it, to have it modeled before you. We have an obligation to set a certain standard in speech, conduct, love, faith, purity. The word um, "example" in the Greek refers to a stamp, some type of intentional setting apart, marking. This is the same word that was used in John 20 to talk about Jesus's nail-scarred hands, right? This marking that, that's differentiated. Another way of saying this is that we need elders who leave an impression on people. This is true not only of pastors. It's true of every believer. We all should be leaving impressions, godly impressions on others. Let's think about this. If someone were to follow you around for seven days throughout the week, 24 hours a day for seven days, what would they find out about you? What impressions would be left? What would they determine about your speech? Would they find you adorning your speech with filth? With worldliness? With frivolous cursings? With gossips and talking about others? Jesus said it's not what goes into into a man that defiles him. But rather what? What comes out of a mouth that defiles him? Does your mouth defile you? Or does it show that you've been changed by the resurrected Jesus? What would they determine about your conduct? This specifically implies to the way you treat other people, your relationships, how you live your life in public. Some of you would probably be okay if you never spoke to to another human being again, right? Uh, Some of us are pretty introverted. Others of us try to use and abuse people for personal gain. How do you treat other people? What behaviors and personal patterns have you developed? Would they see the, the, the wicked, who, who's, uh, the sinner, uh, who's walking in the way of the wicked in Psalm number one? Or would they see someone who is surrounding themselves with the righteous, who's preaching to the lost? What would they determine about your love? Do you selflessly seek the good of others? Do you live sacrificially? How do you treat your spouse if you're married? How do you treat your children if you have kids? What would they find about your love? 1 John 3:16 says that we know love because Jesus laid down his life for us. And we can't know love apart from the cross. Does your love testify that you know Jesus? Has Christ taught you how to love? How about your faith? Faith is belief, it's trust, it's confidence. It works together with reason to grasp hold of grace and truth. Do people see a simple trust and confidence in your life? Believing that God will do what he says he will do? The absence of faith inevitably led Adam and Eve to not trust God and to put their trust in a talking snake. their trust in the father of lies, is your life characterized by trust, or are you crippled by fear and anxiety? Christ is the founder and perfecter of our what? Faith. Faith. Look to Christ. And finally, what about your purity? He ends with purity here. What would they find about your purity? What would they find in the late hours of the night when no one is around? What would they find when you're at work but nobody's watching? What if they could see every wandering eye and every lustful thought that you had in your mind throughout the day? Would they see a person of self-control? A person who's crucifying their flesh daily by the power of the Spirit? Or a person who has no self-control and is not satisfied in Jesus? And let me say to the young folks today, I don't know how young, young is. Y'all consider me a young pastor, I think. Uh, And I am a young pastor, I think. Um, Just talked with a a potential custodian this week, and she said, she's had to ask, she's like, how old are you? (laughs) I get that pretty often, by the way. Um, But listen, young folks, no matter what anyone tells you. I don't care if it's your parents, I don't care if it's your high school teacher, your college professor, your grandma and him, I don't care who it is, here's from your pastor telling you this morning, there is nothing more important than godliness, okay, they may tell you as you're growing up, you need to get a good job, sure, you need to get married, okay. You need to go to school. You need to get a degree. You need to do all of this to live a good and successful life. The Bible says be godly. Hear me and hear the word this morning. You can be an example. If you cling to the words of this book, young people, you can be more uh, adult than half of the adults who don't read the word and cling to it. Be a model as you cling to the book. Be an example. The Bible says you can do it. And to the older folks here today, it's distinctly unbiblical to look down on young people because they're young. They're going to make mistakes. Yeah, they're not going to be a good model because they're still learning. They're still growing. Is your job to point fingers? Man, I get tired of the millennial talk, especially in the church and whenever the gen whatever is after millennials. This ain't in my notes. I need to be careful. (laughs) Jay said the Lord is going to use me. I'm just saying, regardless of political junk, it's not right to look down on young people. God cares about that. Wow. How about that? Let's not look down on young people. Speaking, though, of clinging to the words, what's the third one here? There's a public ministry of the word. That pastors are supposed to have to save their hearers. Be a minister of the Word. To make sure that teaching is mingled well with personal example, there's a public ministry of the Word to be had. God wrote us a book. What should we do with it? We should read it. We should call people to follow it. We should teach it. What does he say in verse 13? Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Right? And most people don't think this way, but God's Word is so holy and good and full of truth and power and grace that just by having it read in public, that's to be considered a ministry of the Word. That's why at the beginning of every service, what do we do? What did Diane do for us this morning? She read the Word. Right? Right? This is important. This is good for us to do. This is good for our hearers. This is what Timothy was doing. This is what Timothy was calling other pastors to do. This is what we should be doing. And the second two verbs are are a repeat, I think, from verse 11. You've got command and teach. Now he says exhortation and teaching. The word exhortation is really close to the word given to the Holy Spirit. A calling out. A summoning. An encouragement. A conviction. A comfort. A comfort. The Holy Spirit comes and dwells in the life of every believer, so the preacher's job is to preach the text in such a way that the Word of God goes out to the heart and soul of every person in the pew, every hearer in earshot of his voice. I say this a lot, and I'll say it again. The Word does the work, right? The Word does the work. The Holy Spirit takes the word and it flies to the heart of the believer as well as the unconverted, convicting the believer to believe in the words that are being preached and the unbeliever to be saved. How marvelous is the word of God. May we never abandon it. We exhort and we teach it. And if I can be honest for a moment, this is the hardest thing and the easiest thing. The easiest thing and the hardest thing. I love Preaching the Bible. I love preaching the Bible specifically to you. I love it. Nothing gives me joy like delivering the precious words of life from this pulpit to people that I love. It's easy because it's enjoyable. It's also easy because God's Word does the work. Yes. Amen. I don't have to worry about what the Lord's going to give me because He's already written a lot here, yeah. He's already given it, hasn't He? And yet, this is one of the hardest jobs on the planet. Nothing makes me tired like preaching does. I pour out myself for study, laboring over the text. I pour out my soul in the pulpit, delivering the Word of God carefully, intentionally. And oftentimes, if we're honest, I think it feels like there's very little movement as a result of that. We wonder, is God taking a break? Are they listening? Does it fall on deaf ears? Is my labor in vain? And so I fight this inner turmoil almost every week, if we're honest. The highs and lows. And it's almost like Paul knew that the pastor would go through this. Because he doesn't just give three instructions to save hearers. He gives three instructions to save yourself. Three instructions to save the pastor. And we'll go through these pretty quickly. Let's read verse 14. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. So, according to God's word, what can I say when I'm tired? What can I say when it feels like nothing's working? When, when, when God's Word is just kind of on a break right now. The Bible says, remember the gift. Remember the gift. God gives under-shepherds the unique gift of being under-shepherds. He doesn't give that to everybody, right? How cool is that? It's a gift. It was given first by God, then it was affirmed by the church. All of you gathered around me, You put a prayer shawl on my back and prayed for me right in this room. A council of elders carefully and intentionally looked at my life and my doctrine. They set me apart by prophecy, so to speak. God gave me this gift. But, but, but somebody looked at me funny while I was preaching. But another person left the church this week, Lord. But only eight people came to church last week. But there's conflict going on. I don't like conflict, God. But, you know, it just feels like a mess. And I can't make everybody happy. But, you know, all the buts. Yeah. And then I think the Lord just kind of does what he does to Eddie sometimes. And he passed me on the back, or on the head. Is that what you say? Yeah. Passed me on the head. He says, remember the gift. Remember the elders. Remember the prophets. Stress begins to melt. I remember that my God is sovereign. <laughs> he loves his church. And I remember that he gave me the best job on the planet. To be an under-shepherd for his, for his, his body. How beautiful is that? What a gift. So we elders, we pick our heads up, we march forward, and then we practice, we practice, and we practice, and we practice so that all may see our progress. We immerse ourselves in the ministry of the church, pouring ourselves out for the good of the kingdom, for the sanctification of souls, and little by little, as we mess up and make mistakes, you see that happen, and you say, man, they're growing. They're progressing. And perhaps in time, the things that used to bother you about us don't bother you as much as they used to. You see where our hearts are. You see that we really do care. You see how desperate we are to keep you from false teaching. Biblically, I should be a better pastor than I was three years ago. Biblically, Joey should be a better pastor than he was five years ago, right? So that all may see our progress. We're not perfect, we know we're not perfect. We strive to preach better, shepherd better, discipline better, love better. We strive to be better. We want you to see us stumbling so you can help us up and rejoice in our progress with us as we keep getting better at this gift God's given us. You're watching us. You're seeing our progress. Finally, what are we doing? We're watching ourselves. We've got our eyes surprisingly looking inward. Right? You're there to lend a a helping hand to support our leadership, to serve, participate, encourage. But we're looking at ourselves. I think of what, uh, what Psalm 139 says, David's prayer, Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. I'll remind you that Paul warned Timothy at the beginning of this chapter about the likelihood of people in the church, even pastors and deacons, hmm. departing from the faith. And so this is our warning for for pastors this morning that you are not exclusively set apart and incapable of committing all kinds of horrible types of sins and, and straight up leaving the church. The Bible says one of the best ways I can save myself from getting into a world of hurt is to open my eyes to my own heart. It might sound silly. But I don't think many of us really want to know what's going on in our hearts, So we just ignore it. We look at all these symptoms, right? Anxiety, fear, pain, relationship problems, unsatisfied with your work or whatever you've got going on in your life. We look at all these circumstances. We say, I'm going to change my circumstances and things are going to get better. I'm going to change my circumstances and things are going to get better. I'm going to change my circumstances and things are going to get better. That's an endless circle. Something's going on in here. And this is where we need to see what's going on. After people pour out all the problems in their life to you, they tell you all their symptoms, ask them what's going on in the heart. Get in a healthy pattern of asking people how their heart is doing. And get into a, a routine of telling people how your heart's doing. Start looking at your heart and thinking about what you're going through. You may not like what you see in there, but here's Psalm 32, verse 5. David again, Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. This is why we do confession every week. So we open our hearts before God so that we can find true healing. And not pretend like it's going to come from some physical source. It comes from the Lord. It's not enough just to have a clean heart. Pastors also need to watch their teaching. Anyone who speaks and teaches regularly can get into a habit of relying on self and teaching so confidently that their ultimate aim is no longer a transmission of truth, but a transmission of thoughts and opinions. If you think God might be calling you to be an elder here at Main Street Baptist Church because you have a lot of thoughts and opinions, you got something wrong. Thoughts and opinions don't save our hearers. Thoughts and opinions won't lead the speaker down a safe, gospel-shaped road of ministry. It's vitally important that Joey and I keep a watch over our teaching that we present to you both in pulpit and out of the pulpit we must be sure we're ministering the Word of God and not ministering thoughts and opinions. Amen? Amen. As I was going over this passage this week, a scripture kept coming to mind. and I, wanna, I think I've got it on the screen here, which is Mark chapter 6. You might remember when Jesus visits his hometown. I just want to wrap all this stuff up in the beauty of Jesus for a minute. Amen. Okay? Look at Mark chapter 6. He went away from there and came to his hometown. His disciples followed him, and on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. Many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? Is not this the carpenter? the son of Mary and brother of James and of Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Here we find the perfect teacher and commander of the truth. Teaching in the synagogues with power and as one who had authority they marveled at his teaching. He marveled At their unbelief. For he was despised for his youth. Starting shortly after his baptism in his uh, young 30s, going to preach in synagogues, teaching that he was indeed the Christ. They said, this is merely Mary's boy. He's no They took offense at him. That offense grew and grew and grew. They began to be more and more scornful. They began to think more and more negatively about his Savior. So they began seeking his arrest almost daily. And some three years later was found hanging on a tree. Because of his purity, his faith, and his love, and his conduct. while he was on that tree. Because we refuse to look and see the sin in our own hearts. Because we refuse to look on the Son of God who came to save his hearers. In his crucifixion, we find the power to be faithful, gospel-shaped pastors. Gospel-shaped elders. He bore our sin on the tree, Taking our depraved hearts to the grave so that in his resurrection, our hearts might be made clean like his. And we can be called sons of God. Made alive together with Christ. Modeling speech, conduct, love, faith, purity for all the world to see. This is the power to live and exemplify the Christian life before the church and before the world. Is God calling you to be an elder? God calling you to be an overseer, follow these instructions to the T, so that our hearers, so that your own person might be saved. But even if God isn't giving you the gift of being an under-shepherd as a Christian, he has given you the responsibility to live out the gospel before sinful men. To watch yourself, to be an example, not to be despised for your youthfulness and not to despise others for theirs. To pursue godliness no matter the cost. And if you're not a Christian yet, the word is for you as well this morning. This word was given to save its hearers. Hear the gospel this morning. Repent and believe. Look in your sinful heart and find the God who can cleanse it and make it new. And give you a new life and prepare you for this holy war that we're on. Look. Confess your sins before a holy God. Repent. Believe in the gospel. Christ is still saving his hearers today. Amen? Amen. 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 Thank you for listening to another message from the pulpit ministry of Main Street Baptist Church in Spindale, North Carolina. I hope that your soul has been edified as a result of hearing the Word of God preached and that God will continue to be glorified in your life as you worship Jesus. If you have any questions about the message you heard today, feel free to uh, check us out online and send an email. You can find us at www.mainstreetspindale.com or you can call us directly at 828-286-2291. Hope you have a wonderful day. God bless.